Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. Our guest this week is an occasional director, an Oscar and Emmy-nominated performer, and one of the most admired actresses of her generation. You know her work from the TV shows Frasier, The Good Wife, Madam Secretary, The Middle, Seinfeld, Grace and Frankie, and feature films like The Cheap Detective, Audrey Rose, Two Days in the Valley, Stella, Heartbreak Ridge, I Love Trouble, and Max Dugan Returns, as well as four films for which she received Academy Award nominations as Best Actress Cinderella Liberty, Chapter 2, Only When I Laugh, and a movie we've discussed at length on this show, 1977's The Goodbye Girl. In a lengthy and successful career that began with, among other things, a drive-in movie about a demolition derby and a one-day part in the classic soap, Dark Shadows. She's worked steadily on Broadway and off-Broadway stage and on the big and small screen. And she also directed numerous stage and TV productions. She worked alongside some of the greatest talents of the last century, including Jason Robards, Albert Finney, George Siegel, Clint Eastwood, Anthony Hopkins, Donald Sutherland, Bette Midler, Richard Dreyfuss, and, of course, her one-time husband and frequent collaborator, the late, great Neil Simon. She's also worked with several guests of this very podcast, including Matthew Broderick, Keith Carradine, Austin Powers. Austin Powers? Austin! (laughs) (laughs) I think it's time to go home. I'm leaving that in. (laughs) I said Austin Powers. Oh, 
spot. I love it. I love I it. Can. I can. That's it. all right. We'll we'll loop it later. Yeah. I, I think it was Matt Helm. She. <laughs> 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 you want to get through the rest of the names? Okay. Yeah. Where were we? Stay on mic. Oh yes. Yeah, that helps too. Uh oh, Christ. Uh, Austin Pendleton, Tim Matheson, Paul Williams, yes. and James Burroughs. She welcomes to the... Oh, please welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been drinking? If, if you'd like to leave at this point, you can. Oh, I, no. This I, is when you want to stay. <laughs> <laughs> Please welcome to the show a gifted, versatile performer and a former professional race car driver, yeah. Marsha Mason. <laughs> That's the best inter- introduction I've ever heard of. Wow. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Thank you very it's much. It's all downhill from here, Marsha. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, no, but what I loved is um, it was a great sort of different perspective and take on my career, which was really nice. You lose sight like of all, all the, those people you've worked well, with? Well, yeah, yeah, you know, because you st- if you stay in the present, you know, it's and it sounded really lovely. All of a sudden, it was like, oh, wow, I did that. Yeah, those were, the ob- <laughs> those were just the obvious names. Yeah, right. We didn't even say like Pacino and all these, and, yeah. uh, and Sid Caesar yes. and all of these other legends. <laughs> Oh, tell us about Sid Caesar. Well, most of my experience with Sid Caesar was through Neil Simon because he told me a lot, and we met briefly. But um, the, all Mel Brooks and and Rob um, Carl Reiner and um, Sid Caesar, they all came out of. Even Peter Stone, you know, there were a Peter lot Stone, of writers. Yeah, there were a lot of writers, and they were friends. And there was this camaraderie that writers have, I think, because they're in writing rooms. Even on the Sid Caesar show, they mm-hmm. had writing rooms. And of course, Neil wrote about it in his two uh, books, his two memoirs. So it was really lovely to uh, kind of do it through being secondhand. Um, and getting a sense of what that world was really like. And they had this camaraderie and this, um, that I, it's actually met um, by uh, British actors, Michael Caine, Sean Connery, people like that, that we had to our house for dinner and stuff. The the Brits are really good in terms of their sociability. In other words, you go and you have dinner and you have these fabulous conversations. Oh, you mean it's like a similar fraternity? Yes. The British actors yes. and comedy writers. Yes. That's interesting. And also they have, uh, they're very adept at social conversation. Interesting. And you're expected to be able to participate. I had... Um, I had an in, invitation uh, through Tony Richardson to visit him in the south of France with his daughter Natasha, and we had people would come through in the south of France um, and have dinner and stuff like that, and the Mitford sisters and people, 
And what was sort of expected of you, which was kind of unusual for me because I tended to be a little bit of an introvert, was you were expected to um, offer some social um, communication mm-hmm. and enjoyment. And they had a great time. And they they loved socializing and especially at dinner or, you know, and drinks and stuff like that. And so it was a wonderful lesson on on how to communicate. So your perspective of uh, the introduction reminded me of that. You That's know, nice. You people t- bring different perspectives to a conversation. We hope you got to go down memory lane a little bit. When I, you did, heard, when you heard I did. That I did. I did. Now, yes. Caesar, you're in, you're, you're in the Cheap Detective. I'm trying to remember if you guys had yes. any scenes together. Uh, no. Because you almost no. weren't in the But cheap- I was there. Right. Because of the first one, which was Murder by Death. Right. I I was his assi- I was Neil's assistant and I simply asked to be that because there were so many great people had to meet like Peter, Peter Sellers. Sellers. Yes, of course. exactly. And who it is not apocryphal you couldn't wear purple. What's that about? I don't know, but you couldn't, wear, you, you couldn't, couldn't wear you couldn't wear purple, purple around Peter Sellers. No, he didn't it, it upset <laughs> him. Now, I heard something that was similar with uh Peter Sellers and Sid Caesar. In that, uh, and you find this with a lot of performers, uh, that off, I, I've often heard off camera, they didn't exist. It's like uh, if they were in character, yes. they had this energy and power off I think camera. That's, I think that's slightly true. Yes. I wasn't, think that's wasn't there true. a story of Mel Bro- of of Caesar getting an award, like some kind of lifetime yes. achievement award, and Mel Brooks had to coach him up or say yeah. do, do it in yeah. German? That's very true. Yeah. yeah, I remember Neil telling me um, when they were writing stuff, Sid would come into the room and he would listen, but you wouldn't necessarily know how he felt about it because he wasn't that communicative. And then he would go out and he would take that idea and he would run with it. So that doesn't surprise me because um, – one of the people that I actually worked with who was very similar was, um, oh, I'm trying to think. Um, Robert De Niro was a lot like that mm-hmm. in the sense that he, um, who he was as a person is very different than the energy that comes through the screen. Accepting that, you can't really separate the two. So he was slightly intimidating and yet at the same time, what you realize then, if you um, keep yourself open and and stay there, is that he's extremely shy. Don't you find that about a lot of performers, though? You're, and you're like that in some ways, too, Gilbert. Sometimes the switch is off. Yeah. Because because performing all the time is exhausting So with some of these people. So when, this, when, the, when they're turned out or when the robot is sort of powered down. Yes, I think that's really true. And can you tell that story, if you know the same story, where Sid Caesar was trying to speak on stage, like accept an award or something, and he was stumbling all over? Do you remember this? That was the story we heard was Mel Brooks was present and he yelled, Sid, do it in German. Oh, and yeah. And by getting a character yeah. or yeah. a dialogue. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think that's true. And I think that's really just true. Exploded. And Neil was a young writer at that show, so um, Mel is the one that told the story about, you know, he would whisper 
Neil would whisper certain lines to Danny, his right. brother, and Danny would say it. As you dramatized know? in the movie, yeah. My Favorite Year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And it was um, Mr. Reiner who said, let the kids, or Mel, who said, let the kid talk. You know what I mean? So it was like that because Neil also was like that. He was very uh, diffident and mm-hmm. uh, somewhat shy, um, and yet he was extremely funny. And th- there's always talk about on your show of shows the insane amount of talent in the writer's room. Yeah. Each yeah. one became legendary. Mel Tolkien, too. Mm-hmm. Selma Diamond. All of them. I've often wondered, too, and because my favorite year is is one sort of semi-fictional portrayal of Sid Caesar. Neil's play is another. Right? Laughter on the yeah. 23rd floor. Yeah. I've often wondered where the truth lies. Oh, I think I think laughter on the 23rd. 20- third floor is neil actually really did write autobiographically mm-hmm. sure uh, barefoot in the park was true joan did sit on the ledge of the window oh and, that's cool to know you know yeah. yeah and um well the odd couple had to do with his brother I that's think. right yeah absolutely yeah, Absolutely. there's a lot. There's a lot. Well, I found it interesting. I didn't know in watching Goodbye Girl, and then I've seen it a hundred times, and then doing research on you, I didn't know how many things came, were true that came from your life. Oh, like a the lot. auto show. Oh yeah, uh, that was true. A lot of it was true. Um, the auto show was absolutely, and only when I laugh, there was a lot of truth. Uh, chapter two, a lot of truth. Yes. A lot of truth. Yeah. What's it yeah. like directing Chapter Two now? Is that weird for you? No, actually, because actually, when I went to do the movie, the play had already opened, and I think it was a couple of years later. So I always thought of it as just it's a character I knew well, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it wasn't. Obviously. It didn't have any. I don't know if this is a failing on my part or a limitation, which it may be. But I can separate myself out a great deal from something. I, I'm not exactly sure why, but it just sort of seems to be the case. Mm-hmm. So when, and maybe part of it was because Neil would give me pages sometimes to read a, a scene or just sometimes pages, and we would talk about it. And then other times, uh, he would wait until the whole thing was done, but but I was always able to treat the work very objectively, and I think that's why we had such a positive and wonderful professional relationship. We had mutual admiration and affection for one another when we worked, and I've uh, often I think it comes across well and often. But people tell me that. Couples have sometimes a very hard time working together or playing tennis together. And it was the one thing about Neil and I that um, wasn't there. We just had this mutual respect for each other and affection. And consequently, we had a great time. Mm -hmm. Did, Did you have an easier time working with him than living with him? Yes. Oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Every now and then. (laughs) I usually get one every three months. Oh, you underrate yourself. Well, well, it's fair to say, and and this is what I find in the research, that he didn't, um, how do I put this tactfully? He didn't uh, love actresses. He He had a certain kind of 
he had a certain kind of difficulty uh, with actresses or or is it the acting profession? Uh, I think it's more the acting acting profession. Right. I don't mean to make uh, it gender based. No, no, it wasn't. Um, unless the actor in particular said something. For example, there was an incident where in one of the plays, I don't remember which one, an actress, a, a female actor. Now we have to change, and we're now well, no longer fine. actresses. <laughs> <right>. Actors. <laughs> um, said, well, uh, I wouldn't say that, meaning she wouldn't say that line. And that sort of question or that statement would make him bristle. Of course. But at, at the same time, he was the kind of writer, if he knew that somebody was really, really talented, he'd write to them. For example, the two experiences that I remember was Annie Wedgworth in Chapter 2. Mm -hmm. And she came in, and the part was originally written like uh, very rat-a-tat-tat, Rosalind Russell, oh. you know, quick-witted and smart and fast. <clears throat> and Annie Wedgworth was from Texas and had a kind of drawl, and she came in and said, oh, I know I'm not the right color for this. And then she did the material, and she was so funny because she had an innate sense of humor and understood timing, which you cannot teach somebody. And Neil said, that's it. So she was diametric, diametrically opposed to the material, but it it went to her. He adapted on the fly. That's right. You could say this, that about Goodbye Girl, too, right? When, when Dreyfus came in the room and he recognized what chemistry the two of you had, oh, they decided, that was, I have we to go rewrite this. We were total strangers. Uh, Richard and I did not know one another. We came in to do a cold reading, and there was just immediate chemistry. And he knew there was a problem with the script. Um, and so he said, okay, I know what to do. And he went back and he completely rewrote it and the goodbye. Uh, we didn't know it would be as successful as it was. Right, though. right, of course. And how did you first meet uh, Neil Simon? I did a play of his called The Good Doctor. And actually, um, it's kind of unusual, but for other people, but not so for me. But I showed up for an audition, and they thought I was a California actress because I was out in San Francisco doing repertory. And um, I, had done, I had shot Cinderella Liberty, and it had just come out, and I think also Bloom in Love. But they thought I was, quote-unquote, a California actress, and somebody said that to me, and I took... I took exception to it. I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> anyway, you had been a New York actress. Yeah. So here I was auditioning, and they gave me sides. Um, and the script had uh, been uh, sent to me, but we missed each other because I was flying back for the audition. So all I had were the sides, and I had one side. And so it was uh, called The Seduction. It was a Chekhovian short stories that he put together called The Good Doctor. And I did the side, and everybody thought that was nice. And they said, oh, do the other one. And I said, what other one? And it was to be called the governess. And I said, well, I didn't get that, and I didn't read the script. But I said, if you want, I'll, I'm happy to audition cold. Just understand that it's cold. And um, 
So I, then I did the uh, the governess for them, and I went back to my um, agent's office, and I thought, well, I'll get a call back. And she said, well, they've hired you. <laughs> so then later, Manny Eisenberg, the producer, told me that Neil said, oh, well, hire that girl. I'm going to marry her. I was just going to ask you that. Yes. <laughs> yes. I was wondering if that was one of those urban myths. No, no, it's yeah. true. And then I went back to California and completely changed my life because I was thought I was going back to repertory at San Francisco. I took care of all of that, and I came back and started rehearsal on October the 3rd. And we were doing the first reading, and of it, everybody was around the table, you know, um, Mr. Plummer and everybody, Franny Sternhagen and Barney Hughes and Renee Aubergenois. Yeah. yeah, it was really impressive. And we took a break, and Neil came around, and he put his hands on my shoulders, I remember, and was saying how very nice. And I reached up, and I just patted his hand on my shoulder three times. And there was such um, an extraordinary, strange, electric, psychic response that I had to excuse myself and go to the ladies' room and talk myself down into a kind of what just happened, that kind of thing. And we were married three weeks later. You know, it's fascinating. Yeah. And it lasted 10 years. So. Instant chemistry. Yeah, instant. Same thing with Dreyfus and I of a different kind. It was not romantic, but we had this great, um, I just don't know what else to say, energy, chemistry together. And Richard and I wound up doing uh, Prisoner of Second Avenue. Yeah, we were just years talking about that. How was that? In uh, at the Royal Haymarket, we had toured with it beforehand. We had the best oh, time, gosh, and I it was as that. if it the same energy was still there. That's and nice I'm sure if I ran into him, the, it would still be there. I, I remember, like a thousand years ago, going with my sisters. It was on Broadway. And seeing Prisoner of Second Avenue with Peter Falk and Lee Grant. That's right. Yep. Lee yep. Grant, who's done this show. Oh, nice. She was terrific. She's lovely. Yep. We went to her house. She let us hold her Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> well, and when we shot The Good Doctor for PBS, for the American Playhouse, uh -huh. Lee played the Franny Sternhagen role, I think. It's interesting, too, uh, that, that he... He originally asked you to stop acting for a yes. while? Yes, yes, yeah. Well, you have to understand, the context is that his wife had passed sure. away in July. We were married in October. There were two young girls. Right. There was a lot going right. on. Neil had not really grieved the death of his wife. The girls hadn't either to some extent. So I stepped into a, a really big, complex highly psychological difficult period for all of us but i had made that commitment very presently mm -hmm. and not exactly romantically i knew the commitment i was making and so I knew that that was a, a really important thing. And so when he said that to me, I make a joke about it now and say, if only he had asked me that before we got married. <laughs> but right. I told him quite honestly that I would do it. I would give it up. 
but I wasn't sure mm-hmm. how I would feel about that. And I said, so as long as you know that, that I'm willing to make that commitment because I do want to make this work. And it was, I think, just fear, anxiety, and also the fact that he hadn't grieved his wife's right, sure. death. Sure, timing. And so consequently, about a year we spent in New York in their old uh, townhouse. We made the big decision to move. And he had gone to a therapist who had asked him, said, well, what would happen if you got married to Marsha and the girls and everything um, and you, you know, changed your life in a major way? And he said, I would be happy. So... That was the big shift. And then we moved out to California, and without I, I had nothing to do with it. He wrote um, Bogart Slept Here and then The Goodbye Girl. Well, as a gift to you? To, to, wrote, well, just, to some extent, a, to I suppose. To get you back in the game? Well, it was. I mean, yeah. he, made the, he wrote the movie. Right. I mean, he right, wrote right. the movie. Now, Absolutely. Uh, Considering it was like right after his wife died, was there any resentment or awkwardness of you stepping in? You know, strangely enough, there wasn't. Um, both the reason we got married so quickly, part uh, partly, or maybe even majorly, is because Ellen and Nancy were then fifteen and nine, something like that, fourteen and nine. 10 or 15, they're five years apart. And they came to us one day <clears throat> and they said, we'd like Marsha to move in, but we won't tell our friends you're not married because we weren't. And in those days, in the 70s, that sure. was still something. So that was a big shift, I think, for Neil, for myself, and for them they were basically sending this message that they really needed a family. They loved me, or at least liked me at that pace. And we are close to this day. Oh, that's nice to hear. Oh, yeah. We're all together for Thanksgiving um, with their now children and a great-grand. Wow, yeah. that's nice. So, so that, I think, was the big shift. Then, of course, once you make that shift— and you're in it, then there are times when feelings come up. After we got married, Neil went into a deep funk about it, and it yeah, was you, tough. You there talk were, about it in the book. Yeah, it was Sitting tough. Sitting in rooms in the dark by himself. Yeah, and yeah. And you don't know what to do. And I, I, I talked to a therapist during that period of time to make sure I was feeling okay about everything. And also, how could I help the girls? Mm-hmm. And they were okay. And then, of course, when we got divorced, especially for Nancy, it was difficult because I think in some ways she wound up grieving two mothers, her first one and me. Oh, yeah. That's so we went through that, and we're close to this day. But it's- sure, there's going to be a, a roller coaster of feelings through death, marriage, Divorce, absolutely. It's sweet in the book to hear you talk about how you like to make him laugh. 
yeah. how, how important <laughs> that was to you. And yeah. there's a, that good little anecdote about you guys going to see Blazing Saddles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the campfire scene yes. cr- cracked him up to oh, the point that he had to oh, excuse himself. Yes, he had to excuse himself. He practically was down on the floor in his hysteric. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anything scatological sent him <laughs> off the moon. That's funny yeah. to know that. Yeah. You know, we talk about his work a lot on the show. Uh, you know, we've, we told you we've had 260 people come in here. And it's, and you know, Alan's wife, Bell, who was a comedy yes, writer, yes, who was a friend yeah. of Neil's, and so many other people. Carl, we've had on the show, and we talk about the Odd Couple yes. a lot, and we talk about Prisoner of Second Avenue, and we both talk about the Sunshine Boys. His impact on the culture—I mean, I'm stating the obvious—and comedy will be felt for generations. And, oh, I and agree. The work won't date. You you put the Odd Couple in now, what 68, 67. Wonderful as ever. Same yep. with the Sunshine Boys. Yep, yep, yep. And the same with the Goodbye Girl, which we yep. just which we just watched again. And yeah, it holds up stuff. pretty well. Yeah, it and does. Wasn't there at one point? I remember, like, I don't know who the hell puts it to a vote. Uh, they 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 announced that they said uh, Neil Simon is no longer relevant. They, yeah, yeah. Well, it, I think I I'm not exactly sure. That that's true. No, it's not. You know, but Where did you see that? It was like it was. Maybe it's one of those insane things that the internet starts. But it was like I thought this is so fucking insane. It's not comedy that dates you. What and you watch Barefoot in the Park now? And like I said, all of these things. Uh, you know the the Lost in Yonkers. All of all of oh, this stuff. Well, see, I think um, it's as good as ever. Yeah, Brighton Beach, Beach Lost in Yonkers, and Broadway Bound as a trilogy are really some of his best work because, as you know, in comedy, I mean, what really makes it humorous and funny is the pain. Yes. And that much I really, really understood and learned from him. Um, And I just think um, what happened when they tried to do the repertory, that they miscalculated how to sell it because actually it should have been, the rep should have been the event, not that it was Neil Simon, and then his material would have possibly. That's interesting. Yeah, because subsequent now we've had all these kind of breakthrough productions that will have two shows or three shows or you see them in rep, blame. You know, when Mark Rylance came, it was a huge success. So I think if they had done that, if they had been more forward-thinking in their advertising, it would have been much different. And and just recently, uh, Frank and I had Artie Lang on this show, and we all started exchanging lines from The Odd Couple. Oh, nice. Which all hold up so well. You know, and also there's the creative children of Neil Simon. There's the writers that were so influenced by him. Oh, there's, yes. So there's generations of this work exactly. that's out in the world that, that right. can be traced back to him. Absolutely. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Let's talk about Bogart Slept Here because it's some of the most interesting things in your book, by the way, which I want to plug. It's, it's, it's not a new book, but it's a, it's a book worth getting. Oh, Journey. Thank you, yeah. And I love, too, how you went through all those, uh, those t- alternate titles. <laughs> <laughs> Before arriving at yeah. it, but but the story of you writing the letter to De Niro years later, oh yeah, is very yeah. moving. Yeah, but just want to take uh, take our listeners back to the backstory. It started life as a, as a different script, as a movie yes. called Bogart Slept Here, based on the life of Dustin Hoffman. That's correct. Dustin and his first wife, I believe, uh, Anne, they were living down the street from us, and. He had been discovered by Mike Nichols um, for The Graduate. And he and Neil were talking one day, and they were talking about that experience. And Neil wrote a play called Bogart Slept Here about a struggling actor with a wife and a couple of young kids who gets a big break um, and has a major film director come and changes life overnight. Changes life overnight. Yeah. And um, Ray Stark was producing, and Bobby De Niro was in it, and myself. And we we rehearsed, and we shot a couple of. I think we shot a couple of weeks. And the man who changed Hoffman's life was directing. Yes, Mike Nichols. Mike Nichols. <laughs> and we ran into difficulty. Uh, between Mike and Neil in in the tone and the direction of the film because Mike had a very specific idea, which I guess they had not really talked out prior to us beginning. Interesting. And I was kind of caught in the middle because Neil and Mike were having these difficulties and they – and then I was stuck in the middle because I was with one man most of the day and then went home to, with the other. How, how un- and it uncomfortable. Was very, it was. It was extremely difficult. And what happened was um, everybody, all the powers that be, including the studio at the time, understood that we, we had a really big problem and that it wasn't going to work. And so we stopped. And De Niro was still kind of in character. For, for He had just come off yes, Taxi Driver. Yes, right. yes, that's part of it. So that, that must have made it. But, you know, I mean, that's like, in some ways, I think it's really interesting. It just depends, you know, because there were so many men involved mm-hmm. that as a woman observing it all, it was really fascinating to me. But I didn't have a voice in anything, and I couldn't say anything because the men were oh. all the powerful figures. So I I had no say, really. Um, but there was this moment when 
Bobby called and said, I really want to try to work this out and, you know, make it work. But the men, all of them, the studio, Mike, Neil, whatever, they had made the decision that we weren't going to go forward. And I felt, I felt held back. I felt like I, I didn't have, I, there wasn't anything I could do. So then fade out. Part of it was because they thought that maybe my, uh, that um, Bobby didn't really understand humor. Yeah. So it was two years, I think. He had not later. really been in a comedy to that point. No, he had been in no. Bang the Drum slowly and Taxi yeah, Driver. Yeah, no, no, and no. Mean yes, and, exactly. All of that was out there, yeah. and he was considered a very serious actor, but he had not done a comedy. So I go off. And I see one of his pictures. Many years later. and Well, not too many, oh. actually. Um, but a few, mm -hmm. you know, maybe four or five years. Mm -hmm. And Neil and I had now separated. And I, I just was so moved by his performance and his humor and everything that and actually, I don't even think it was a picture that was a comedy. Oh. It was uh, the one that where he played the Vietnam vet returning. Knife. That's it. So there was something about that thing that prompted me, and I found the address for his production company, and I wrote this letter and basically just said how sorry I was that I didn't fight for him. Oh, nice. And everything. And we wound up talking on the phone. And he had, you know, he was so dear and so sweet and so lovely, lovely. And he said he totally understood the position I was in. And then he referred back to the Cotton Club picture because his then wife was in it. And he said, it's always so complicated when you are working with someone that you're married to. Oh, interesting. And it was so lovely of him that I, you know, was finally able to put that to rest. That's not was nice of you to reach out. Well, like that. Yeah, but I wish I had been stronger. I think the women today are I didn't have that kind of um chutzpah. And I didn't feel that I was entitled to compared to how I feel today, where I would brook nothing today compared to then. But that's my own growth and also my position as a woman in the business at that time, right. which was very different. Do, do dailies exist? Does this footage exist of, of as the studio buried it? I don't know. Of Bogart slept here? I don't I have no idea. Interesting. That's really good. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Very interesting. And also Mike then later, I think in his own um conversations with Jack on the HBO interview with Jack O'Brien and stuff, um, or in it, at certain interviews, he said that was a very the that was a very difficult time for him. Well, he was also coming off the fortune, which had flopped. Exactly. And he was, and, and as you write about well, it in the it book. Well, it happened while we were in pre-production and rehearsal. You and said he, he had a crisis of confidence. Yeah, and he didn't know why the fortune didn't work, and that scared him a lot. We have to talk about Cinderella Liberty because it's one of Gilbert's favorites. 
Yes. And, and I saw it in the theater. <clears throat> and and to this day, I remember the theme song was written by Paul Williams. <laughs> and sung by Paul Williams. And sung by no, Paul John, Will John Williams and Paul Williams. You're confusing Cinderella Liberty with the Goodbye Girl. No, no, Goodbye no, Girl. No. Goodbye Girl was David oh, Gates. Oh no, Paul Cinderella Williams. Right, right, right. Yes. You know, that's right because I asked. I don't know how this came to be. Partly because Mark Rydell was a big jazz enthusiast, and we were talking one time, and he said, "What instrument would you think would rec be Maggie's?" big instrument and i said the harmonica oh, and paul williams wrote that i yeah. was so stunned and 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 it goes as follows <laughs> hello i'll do it as paul williams hello what a simple way to start a love affair oh my god should <laughs> oh i speak god. right out and say how much i care would you take me for a madman or a simple-hearted clown? <laughs> Hello, with affection from a sentimental fool to a little girl who's broken every rule. One that lifts me up when all the others seem to let me down. One that's nice to be around. Should do I say <laughs> that <laughs> it's a blue world without you? He sang this to Paul <laughs> oh yes. on the show, too. And, and after oh a while, he had to join in and sing with me. <laughs> so it was Aww. like stereo Paul Williams. Oh, that's great. I love it. I love but it. But I always loved that song. It's the a sweet movie. The reason I got confused is because I just had a thing on Facebook or Twitter or something. I think it was Facebook. And somebody sent me a woman in Canada who's like a, been a fan for years. She sent me a picture of Brad. Was it Brad who did the goodbye da girl? Uh, David Gates. David Gates. Yeah. yeah. Brad. So, formerly so Brad. I get, I formally, yes. So I, I got the two confused. You're right. And and one of the actors in, of course, was Eli Wallach, the great one of our favorite actors. Uh, I loved. Eli. Didn't he put the bug in your ear that you might want to do the good he doctor? He absolutely did. And I'm trying Audition to remember why we knew one another. I can't remember why, because he said to me, oh, by the way, I just got a script. I think you'd be great in it or whatever. And it was the Cinderella Liberty script, and he was going to give it to me, and then they were sent, and that's how that whole wow. thing, and I went back and blah, blah, and missed the thing. But you're right. It was, it was Eli Wallach who uh, first mentioned it to me. Now you say you didn't in those days. You didn't have uh, the confidence to to speak up the way you do now. But do I have this right? You talked to Rydell. You made a request about changing the ending. I did. So that's a that's a bold stroke. I did. Well, you know, when it came to material, mm -hmm. um, I have a friend, Jack O'Brien, and some other people tell me that I really can't lie. Because they can read it on my face. And I 
I saw this uh, an original screening, and I told Mark that I thought it, you're asking us to root for this couple and then to, you know, uh, have them fail or not succeed, and especially her is going to hurt. It's going to not be good. And and he said, but that's life. That's real. Interesting. So I said, okay. But then he listened to some extent, and they did a voiceover and that basketball stuff at the end where Jimmy Kahn says to the kid, my kid, you know, we're going to go find her. Fade out, it's a year later, and I go down to the uh, public to see an early version of the chorus line. And in this version that Michael Bennett had written, and by the way, The Good Doctor was directed ultimately by Michael Bennett, um, that we had two directors. And um, so Michael had asked Neil to come down and take a look at it. And we went, and in this particular uh, production, that night, because they were working on it, it was, you know, basically early in the show, uh, Cassie doesn't make the cut. So Michael asked my opinion, and I said, I think you're making a mistake. With Chorus Line. Uh-huh. And... I see. He said, what do you mean? And I said, she has to stay in the line. And he said, well, but it's not real. I said, listen, Mark Rydell said that to me too. <laughs> and I said, people do not go to the theater to see life just imitated back at them in the same despairing way that they're experiencing it. Oh, I, so oh. I said, you have to have hope. You have to aspire. You have to feel better um and they changed it and cassie stayed in the line you hear you I, heard it here marcia mason personally yes. changed the ending of chorus line well i didn't uh, actually <laughs> um, um uh oh god um oh, marvin hamlish in the documentary for the chorus line, i totally forgot the story and somebody said to me, oh, my God, you changed the whole thing of Chorus Line. And I said, what are you talking about? They said, I just saw the documentary, and Marvin Hamlish says, you changed it. I said, I, so I went and I saw the documentary, and he, I didn't know he knew. That's great. So he, it was true. That's great. I, I, I read that in Pretty Woman, the original ending in the script was he drives her Right to where he picked her up, hands her the money, and drives off. Oh, it was a much darker script. Yeah. 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 Which I would have loved to have seen that ending. You know, it's funny, Cinderella Liberty being a creature of the 70s. Yeah. In movies, American movies have changed. In those days, an, an audience would accept that ending. You know, we were yeah. in the age of Midnight Cowboy. Totally. You could have a downer. But I think that's ending. why the Goodbye Girl was so successful because in those days you went to these small movie theaters and you filled out cards sure. and people were desperate for a fa what they called a family movie. In other words, a movie they could take their kids to. And that we had no idea that the Goodbye Girl would be as a, as successful and part of it was because we just happened to get lucky on that shift out of the darkness That's into 
uh, a more positive vein. I will let you know that my wife and I tear up, and we did again Saturday night when you pick up that guitar. Oh, I and know. And run out on that yeah. fire escape in the rain. I love you. And I Andy. get choked up now thinking about it. The, you know. Well, see, I think you we're really, in you dark really times. Well, we're in dark times, and so it's good to have a balance. You know, where you have yeah, dark is a given, but so is light. One of the things that make it great as a romantic comedy is the darkness. And we talked before about that. That's that Neil could write yeah, from that. Yeah, the, the pain. The scene. It's a, and it takes its time putting these two people together. But you break my heart a hundred times. You put the scene where you're in the street and you're stuffing the spaghetti just, back in the box. I know, but that's just the truth. Yeah, there's that's but there's so the much truth. pain to get there. You know. Yeah. It's 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 why I think it's a, a, a model romantic comedy that people who want to make romantic comedies should look at. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's real. Yeah. You want to tell us about how Paul Newman got you into race car driving <laughs> since we put it in the intro and now the whole world is wondering, what? Oh and you God. once drove a car 200 miles an hour? Yeah. Yeah. I can't picture this. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't drive. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. never got a license, no, I right? Was, no, I was. No. I was. I was. Uh, well, when you say professional, I was a, um, a sports car club, SCCA driver for seven years. I had a team. Um, I, um, I've been to most of the tracks in the West and the Midwest and, um, I always brought the car home and I was made a Chevalier by the SCC. What, what does that mean? You were made uh, somebody a who is racing in their fifties. I see. And, um, yeah. So I had, a, I, I did it all. Yeah. And I had a GT3 car. You bought one. No, uh, it was built. Oh, okay. Yeah. You well, the built. very first one I bought was it was a GT3 car, um, and I bought it off a kid in Rialto for about twenty five hundred, and put a Mazda engine in it, and had a kind of mom and pop team with a friend of mine who was a lawyer, and it was like a pastime, a hobby. And I was living out in L.A. at the time, so we went up to Button Willow and uh, you know Springs up there. And raced up there, and I got my license there. And then I met up with Mike Lewis out of San Diego, who is a really serious. He's done Le Mans, and he's done all the big races, and he races a GT1 as well as a GT3. And he ran uh, Mazdas also, so he would help us if we had some motor trouble. So one day he called me up and he said, listen, would you be interested in hooking up together? And, you know, I'll, I'll give you my championship car because he was building himself a new one. And you can have my GT3, my old GT3, and we'll do a, you know, uh, arrive and drive situation, what they call mm -hmm. arrive and drive, meaning you show up. If you crash it, you pay for it, and otherwise they take care of it, and they, you have a, you know, your, your crew and everything. So I started racing, and I did the SCCA races and the NASPORT races, so I had about... 12 to 15 races a season. But out in L.A., With we the could helmet bring... and the suit, the, oh, whole, yeah. the, whole, the, oh, whole, the whole shebang. Thing, yeah. there's, there's a few actors, well, Paul Newman, of course, 
Then there was Steve McQueen, Steve McQueen yeah. and James Dean. James Garner raced, too? And Tom oh. Cruise. Tom Cruise. Yeah. I spent yeah. a weekend with Paul and Tom. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. It was <laughs> a really serious fun. racer. Yeah, it was well, great. I mean, people would have to read the book to, to track your journey from a self-described, you know, good girl <laughs> in, in growing up in St. <laughs> Louis yeah. to this... To, to, to you getting in touch with the rebellious side of, you, yes, of yourself yes. that puts you in a race car going 200 miles an yeah, hour. It's, I just didn't have enough to do after I got divorced <laughs> and uh, my career slowed down and I just didn't have enough to do. And I Paul and I were on a plane together going from New York back out to California. I asked him, what are you doing? We were sitting, you know, in the same cabin and... Um, he told me he was going out to Riverside for the last race. I said, oh, I love racing. And he said, really? And I said, yeah, because when I was in high school, my best friend, one of my girlfriend's uh, father had bought a track, but he had only opened the straight uh, the straightaway. So he was doing, uh, uh, you know, um, funny cars and mm -hmm. stuff like that, quarter milers. And I, after mass on a Sunday, we would go out and I would hand out the pit passes to the guys. And I was just fascinated by the mechanics of it all. I knew nothing. And um, so I told this to Paul. So Paul said, oh, well, come out and, you know, hang with us. So I did for the weekend. I stayed out of the way and I just watched. And then I happened to ask the crew manager, I said, well, where are you going next? And they told me. So I showed up and they said, well, <laughs> and then when the next race, they said, you want to come along? I'll get you an extra room at the motel. So I said, sure. Then sometimes Joanne would come. And so it pretty soon was like that for about a year. And then, uh, yeah, just went on from there. I was once in a race car with Jay Leno. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But just uh, I don't uh, think I don't think the average moviegoer associates Marsha Mason with with professional I, racing. I'm trying to picture it the whole time you were telling the story. Yes, I know. It's really interesting. Well, I went to every school that was imaginable. There were about four of them, Bondron, you know, Jack Russell, all all of them. Um so I did. Uh, I tell did. Tell us it. about James Kahn you work with. Oh, uh, he's lovely. We've had people lovely. come to help tell us stories, different well, stories. Yeah, because he, well, he's he's a complicated guy. Yeah. But when I first worked with him on Cinderella Liberty, he was a big. He was the big star. Coming I was off a of Sonny Corleone. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was huge, and what was so interesting was how much he gave of himself behind the camera. So when it was my close-up, his performance was the same as when he was on camera. And Vilmer Sigmund, the cinematographer, said he had eyes in the front of his shoes. He always knew how to hit his mark. So I learned a lot from him. Wow. And when we had to do the bedroom scenes and stuff like that, I mean, he had a girlfriend. He had, you know, I mean, he had an entourage. I, I knew nothing, and he was a total gentleman and wonderful. When we came time to do uh, Chapter 2, he his whole personal life had changed, and he was having difficulties. So he was in, in a complicated position at that time. And he felt very um, 
upset and angry that he he really thought maybe the gambler would give him that leg up right. for the academy pretty good award. movie but it didn't was. but it didn't great. didn't do yeah. a big box office and it made him angry interesting you know i read an interview with him and he said that um he was embarrassed by some of the choices that he made in the 70s at, at when he was coming out of the godfather but not cinderella liberty that he was proud of he was particularly proud of that he one. was it was beautiful it was a gorgeous performance and i think the reason they they pushed cinderella liberty out early because i was an, i was nobody you know to get a nomination that was just shocking and also they rushed the picture out for that you know week between thanksgiving right. and christmas and it was because of jimmy's performance but it, I, it wasn't recognized i heard you say there was so much going on at that particular time that you didn't really get to savor the experience i didn't i didn't because i had married neil i was doing the good doctor on broadway i couldn't go to the golden globes and because we had gotten married some people thought um it was uh, wrong and terrible, and they uh, they felt that I was the character in Cinderella Liberty. So the girls would get uh, hate mail. But who, who you would know, be stupid enough I to think know. that? Well, <laughs> but they did, and they said, "How can you know? How can he marry somebody who plays a whore and all of this kind of stuff? So prostitute or whatever you want to call it? Bizarre. Yeah." I'm interested too in the early days and going and going through the book. You had a nice experience with Peter Falk when you were a very young actress. Oh, I did. And this is years before you would get yes, to work with him on the Chief yes, Detective, but yes. it shows the generosity of the man. Oh, to totally, a to a young actor, totally, another, totally. another young actor. Yeah, because I I was an extra, and it was I here I was in New York, just fresh out of college wanting to be an actor and everything. And so I thought, well, and they were shooting this black and white series <laughs> where he played a lawyer or a detective or something. We talked about this series where he played a lawyer. Oh, uh, Trials of O'Brien. Yes. That's it. I, so, I used to that's remember that as a yeah. kid. So um, I was an extra. And because I had done a bunch of commercials, I, I bought myself, before I became conscious, I bought myself a Canadian fox uh, coat, real fur, which to this day. I, well, people in those days. In those days. So anyway, so we're going to do a scene in the old Pan Am building with the escalators going down to a Grand Central. And I'm sitting around as an extra, which is just a thankless job. And I see that they're going to shoot some scene with just Peter over in a corner somewhere. So I go over and I hide behind some flats or whatever in the studio. This is before the Pan Am building. And I watch him uh, act to a, uh, a, a drawing on the floor of a, where the body is mm -hmm. supposed to be. And Nehemiah Persoff was... Wow, wow. wow. So anyway, fade out. Uh, somebody caught me doing this, and so I guess it got back to him. I don't know how it happened. But anyway, I mentioned to him, or he knew about it, whatever it was, fade out. We're now in the Pan Am building, and we're going down the escalator. And he comes up behind me, and he said, um, or I say to him something like, oh, Mr. Falk, whatever. And he goes, 
uh, you want to be an actor? And I said, yes, yes, I do, and and everything. And I I must have told him, I think I, I, I got this coat and everything. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, okay, he said, so your mother can see you. I've got to stand right here. <laughs> and he did. So while we're going down the escalator, there I am That's in my great. Canadian Fox jacket coat or whatever. Sweet. And there's Peter Falk. I just loved what it. What a nice thing to do for a young man. When actor. we were on um, um, Murder by Death, I told him that story. You did. Story. I was going to ask yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was a peculiar... Well, I, I mean, I've heard interviews with Neil Simon that he was a big Peter Falk fan. Yeah. And there was a peculiar production of the Sunshine Boys. Oh, the with one with Woody Allen. And, Woody and Allen Falk. and Peter yeah, Falk. TV. Yeah. God, I don't that was remember a that. It yeah. came and went. Yeah, it was yeah. like a TV movie a less, A less successful. Oh, really? And, and I mean, you know. You, yeah. you can't say anything about the talent of either one of them, uh-uh. Woody Allen and Peter Falk, but right. it just didn't work. And you, you keep thinking, Walter Matthau was just yeah, he was amazing. Great. It this was wasn't great. in the book, but I found this in an interview with you. Uh, Joan Rivers and someone else planned to do a female version of The Odd Couple. Yes. And they wanted you there. They wanted to run it by you. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted a, they they wanted a woman present, particularly yes. you. Yes. Well, and for, um, forgive me because I'm forgetting. It was Joan Rivers and God, I can't remember. I know now. they did it with Rita Moreno and Sally Struthers. That's right. But That's it was right. but it was two other people. But it was myself. two other people at the time. Yeah. I don't remember it either. Yeah. Yeah. But they 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 wanted your input in it. <laughs> to, to this day, if you see if it's one of yours, if it's only one I laugh, if it's if it's uh-huh. the good by girl, if it's chapter two. Can you, are you one of those actors that can stop and, and watch? Or do you no. do you deconstruct, I can't watch this because I did this wrong and I did that wrong? No, it's not that. I, I don't have any problem. I can watch the dailies. And what's really cool is I learned this about myself. I don't know why, but um, I would watch the dailies. And, and in those days, the director allowed me to. So if it was Herb Ross or whatever, mm-hmm. Bob Moore, that that – um, invariably, we always pick the same takes. Oh, interesting. So I I just think truth and the purity of the take just is clear to everybody. So, And I can be very objective and professional about it. And like I said, I think that's maybe part and parcel of why Neil respected me. And, and also, I was very respectful of what the scene required and the, who the character was. But if, if they come on the television, are you able to escape into the story, or are you thinking about everything that was going on in oh, your no, life I, at you that know, particular time? <laughs> no, you know, actually what happened is, I remember there was this one time, this happened quite a while ago, but I heard this voice, and I thought, God, I know that person. Who is that? And then... Slowly, I came around the corner, and it was me on the television <laughs> in one of the movies. Wow. And I said, oh, well, now we really but, do have to shut it off. But so, <laughs> Your but own voice. You, you don't cringe when you watch yourself. No, you go, no, no, no. Robert Moore did good work. Yes, he did. By the way, yeah. Murder by Death and The Chief Detective, yeah. and, and Only When I Laugh. And yeah. so, not only when I laugh, that was uh, Glenn, uh, Glenn Jordan. But he did some good stuff in Chapter 2. Yeah. Yeah. More people should know about him. Yeah. And should know about his work. 
We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. Yeah. Can we throw some names at you just to get short, sure. just to get quick reactions? Uh huh. Because um, I wrote down some of the wonderful people you worked with. We talked about Khan, um, Anthony Hopkins. And oh, Rose. love Tony. Yes, not only that, but and Robert Tony, Wise. Yes, but but also Tony and I did a play. We actually, it's really sweet. Todd Haynes at the roundabout said that we helped them save the roundabout at that moment wow. because I brought I brought um, Tony out of because of Audrey Rose. We wanted to do a play together, and we picked um, Harold Pinter's um, Old Times, and I got Jane Alexander to do it. And wow. the three of us did it for the roundabout, and it it helped them keep their their company alive. There's an actor I can watch do absolutely anything. Oh, he's brilliant. There's no such thing as a bad movie with 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 Anthony he's, Hopkins. He's brilliant. holding your attention. Well, there was that. There was that one with uh, Chris Rock. I don't even know that Hopkins. one. Oh, Bad Company. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, even movies like Magic and, and yeah, Hearts no, in he's, he's a great actor. No, he's just, really You can't good. take your eyes off the guy. What about the great Albert Finney? Oh, I love it. I loved Albert. Yeah, it was great to work with. You know, the Brits are really interesting, and especially the actors. They, they. They have, I don't know what, if it's because they have the confidence of their country. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, they, they are, they're treated seriously. Yeah. And they can go from theater to television to film, and they can work through all of their ages, and they're revered, and they're given knighthoods, and they're considered royalty, even though they have a monarchy in that country. People say that actors, movie stars, are the royalty of America, but it's not true because the minute a woman gets of a certain age, she's just, you know, go away. So They're allowed to become esteemed older actors. Yeah, and maybe, maybe we're going to get there with, uh, you know, today's Hollywood and the Me Too movement, but... Most people do not still have that tacky sort of, um, I don't know, attitude, I think, about people in my who are actors. Yes, they are revered, they're respected, don't get me wrong, but at the same time, it isn't really the same. I get it. And, and tell us about your one day's work. On Dark Shadows. <laughs> was it one day? Did we have that right? I think it was probably just... You were a hooker just, who turned into a vampire? That's right. And Perfect. I learned a new word. I learned a new word because the description was she's a doxy. And I didn't know what that meant. And it meant a woman who worked on the docks, who was a prostitute for the sailors or whatever. It's called a doxy. And then I became I became a werewolf or whatever you call it. <laughs> Great. And so I had to. I did my hair and the makeup and the whole thing. Yeah. So, so you were a, a hooker werewolf. I was a hooker werewolf. <laughs> I had it wrong. I thought it was a vampire. No, I was a hooker werewolf. That's hilarious. And I yeah. remember what I remember. It's a classy about, show, actually. Yeah, I was, was a stylish show. Dark Shadows. I used to watch it because I loved anything to do with monsters. 
But I remember even back then knowing this was like a zero-budget production. Oh, totally, <laughs> totally. Black and white. What about the great Jason Robards? Oh, my God. And, and Max Dugan Returns, yeah. a movie I like. It was so wonderful. It was so great. He was so at ease. So talk about casual, laid back, sure. right on the money. You're talking about these great uh, British thespians, but you worked with your I share did. of, yes. when you're dropping names like Eli Wallach and Jason yeah. Robards and yep. Albert Finney. Yep. Uh, I won't count Albert Finney as an, as an American actor, but still, you worked no, with... No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Giants. Yeah, absolutely. And, and absolutely. nice chemistry in that film, you oh, and Robards. Oh, beautiful. I love... Well, I had such respect for him because I told him that... Um, in All the President's Men, he has this moment where he finally decides to tell Woodward and yeah. those guys to go forward. They keep the camera on Jason. He turns around, and it's on his back. And he's walking away, and the camera holds on him, just him. And he just kind of does this thing on the desk as he's I know what you leaving. Mean. And that moment... Moments that actors, great actors have, always sort of resonate. So when I was doing a television movie about, um, was with Kiefer Sutherland when he was, I don't know, 18 or mm -hmm. something. And I play a doctor and he's this difficult child. And I have this moment where we make a kind of breakthrough and I stole it. I just stole it from Jason. I'm sitting on a desk, I think, or whatever, and I just went, just like that. It was, it was <laughs> my homage and to Jason Roberts. So when we not? shot um, when we shot the movie together, Max Dugan, I told him the story. And and That's one nice. actor who uh, I'm not going to leave alone till he agrees to do the podcast. Oh, George Siegel. George Siegel. We've been chasing him since you we started. You have? Yeah. Started oh, and they show. want me to do a documentary on him. So I can tell them he has to come and do uh, your oh. show before <laughs> I'll do. We even, we even um, have actor friends of his, like like Ron Liebman and, and yes. Jessica, uh -huh. asking him. <laughs> but for some reason, he, we haven't been able to. So since he won't talk to us, can you tell us well, you what have, he's you have like? That, you have that nice story where you audition for Bloom and Love, and then what? You disappeared to London to clear your head? Yes, and, you and saw I ran him into down him. I was hoping, you know, that I would get the job, and it I hadn't heard, and no news is good news. And I see him in the park <laughs> um, in London, and I go rushing up to him <laughs> to say, Oh, my God, Mr. Siegel, I'm just a such a big fan and I want you to know I auditioned for Bloom and Love and blah 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 and he's kind of you know like who is this person because <laughs> I'm really sort of over the top here and um, and then of course I immediately heard that I did not get the job and I went into uh, a deep depression but then wound up getting to do the job so you never know what destiny has when, insured when you got you. on bloom and love and then he he made the connection did he say this is the girl that ran that ran you know i'm not sure he me? did i told him i said do you remember that crazed girl that was coming up to you and he said yeah and i said it was me that's funny <laughs> you had and you say that you had the good fortune to uh, to work with two directors who were actors yes. early, early on yeah Rydell i really and, think yeah uh, and, and, and Rydell's Paul on Ms. Facebook, so we're Paul going to invite him Mazursky. to do this show. I don't know if you stay in touch with him. Yes, I, I saw 
I saw him a couple of years ago. We had lunch. We had Bruce Dern here, and he talked about um, the Cowboys. Yeah. And so we have to ask uh, Mark to do the show. But Mazursky, too. I mean, yeah. you were fortunate. Yeah, I was. To, to be working I with really these people was. who knew acting, knew, knew how to protect. Yeah, and I think that's really why I was able to transition to, to film from just being a theater person mm-hmm. was because they made it easy for me. They they gave me the um the direction and the confidence to just make that shift whereas nowadays people worry about it and have to take separate classes and all of that i think those two gentlemen really were instrumental in in being able to talk to me and communicate to me actor to actor right, so that right. at the same time they were really good uh, movie directors, they were also good actor-directors. Oh, what what pointers would you give to, like, young acting students? Don't anticipate, or you'll get hit in the head like Rip Torn. <laughs> yeah. Gave you a whack. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't recommend that. But, um, <laughs> I was going to, all these nice character actors that we're talking about, you also survived Rip Torn and Norman Mailer. I mean, I think... Um, it's really difficult because the business has changed so much. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays, what's asked of the actor in order to ha- be uh, in the films is branding and all this other stuff. Um, so if you're a, a serious actor, um, I think you have to get really good at your craft. I think you have to go to museums. I think you have to read. I think you have to study. I think you have to do um, everything you can to immerse yourself in a creative environment because, especially for film, your window is so small. If you don't break out in a movie nowadays, you can't learn your craft doing it. You you have to come prepared. I remember Holly Hunter um, gave very good advice uh, as an independent, um, when you're doing independent film, you know, you have no time anymore. See, we, we had two weeks of rehearsal on most of the films I did. Oh, interesting. On the sets, or not location, but certainly on the sets, if you had sets. So nowadays, you don't have that. You have to. You have got to have made your choices. Take really good care of yourself. Do it well. Listen to the director, but follow your gut. That's the advice you'd give them. Yeah. And I've heard you say that you think it's beneficial that people do each other's jobs at least once. Oh, that an I, actor should direct. Absolutely. And a director should act. Yes. And, a, and, a, and, a, and everybody should try to write. Yeah. And you do, it doesn't to, have to, to be develop published empathy for the for yep. the. Exactly. To have a respect for the discipline. Because until you do it, you don't really understand what it takes to do it. Uh, That's why when I I remember I was working with a young uh, director out of film school. And in those days, uh, he and uh, John Mahoney and I did a 20 minute. You worked with him a lot. Yeah, piece of film for this young director. And he was, you know, doing the 20 minutes to get money to do the whole picture. He had no vocabulary with which to talk to us. And he and John and I had a long conversation about it. 
Nowadays, uh, the film departments uh, in schools and stuff are much more open and they're trying to integrate, even like at Columbia, for example, for years, the directing and the acting didn't even know one another. I mean, it's ludicrous. But um, yeah, I think that's really it, is you have to have empathy, but you also have to have respect for the discipline. You enjoy the, working, you know. doing uh, Frasier? With Mahoney, you look like oh, you were yeah. having a good time. I had a great and I never time. saw you play a part like that. Like she was a good time girl. I know, yeah. Well, you go back to Cinderella Liberty. <laughs> I mean, right. You but know, she was but di- people's she, perceptions, and this is the problem today for young actors, is that they're they're categorized. They're they're um they're they belong to a group. Oh, she's this or she he's sure. that. And that's the problem because as an actor, you don't think of yourself that way, but that's pretty much you have to. I remember I was teaching a master class at Carnegie Mellon and the kids were saying to me, well, how do I brand myself? How do I? And I said, what are you talking about? Because when Bobby De Niro, Bob Redford, Jane Fonda, myself, when we came, all came up, none of that, we didn't talk about that. We were sure. just supposed to be really good at what we did, which was to act. Right. So we weren't categorized. But nowadays, everybody is categorized. They're, um, they're put into a group Oh, she's funny, or right. she's this, and that's how they're casting. So you're telling me Gilbert could do Lear if he wanted to? <laughs> Actually, I think maybe that's true. <laughs> that's, a scary, that's a scary notion. And this, is, this is a cliched question that's been asked, but is, is comedy harder? I know you believed, as Neil did, to do it like drama. Play oh, it, you have to it, make you have it, to do it for real, absolutely for yeah. real, because that makes it funny. If I'm it's well in, written, I'm watching you in Frasier, and you come blasting into this. This, this. I think I watched the episode where you you made your debut, uh-huh. and you know Maggie. You compared her to Maggie in Cinderella Liberty, but she's a tragic character. Yeah, this this character is just, and I never saw you play anything like that. Yeah. Well, what like was interesting a is a bottle of uh, yeah. I of heard cold that duck. a couple of the producers when my name came up because John was uh, anxious to have some material for himself because he had signed on, and the original idea for the series was much more about him and the two guys. And then, right. of course, what happened was people got more interested in the two guys. So the bottom line was is that John needed you know he needed to be able to explore his character a little bit more and he put me on a short list of I think with other people so when the name came up and everything there were some of the producer writer producers who thought I was quote unquote a Giorgio Armani type not a you know ex showgirl <laughs> it's like saying you were an LA actress <laughs> good doctor exactly so um, what was really interesting though is when I read the script and everything they did send it to me and asked if I would do it um I talked to the costume person who I had never met, and I said, I, I have some ideas. And she said, yeah. And the two of us totally got right away who the character was uh. from the clothes. And I account that to my training as an actor because costume means a lot in terms of 
telling you who the character is or whatever. And so and, when they came down for the for the run through, because you know you're working on it for a couple of days, and they give you some rewrites, and then because it was all done live at, at that time for camera, and then all the producers come for a. a Everybody was like, you know, knocked off their. We we had it solid. Yeah, yeah. So it was great good. in it. You're you're about the only guest we've had on the podcast who's done research on me before. <laughs> Just to, we didn't have the mics doing... on, but to catch our listeners up, Marcia came in and she was excited that she'd read an article about Gilbert and in, 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 in Vulture. Vulture, yes, in, in Vulture. Yeah. Well, I well I direct you to to see his wonderful performance in the movie Aladdin. As I a, haven't seen it yet. Okay, <laughs> I'm looking forward. I read about that. Seems like they call on you and just said, "We need the laugh," and that's it. And you yes. go in, <laughs> and they s- pay you for five minutes. Yeah. Do you see someone like like Gilbert, who's an absurd, broad comic? Do you see him playing a being versatile enough to play a dramatic role if he yes, put his mind to but it? But only if he wanted to. Uh huh. Yeah. How about that? Only if he wanted. to. What do you to. think, Gil? Yeah. His life is it anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I'll I'll do nothing but uh, Tennessee Williams plays for now. I on. never sang for my father. Yeah, oh, that's right. <laughs> uh, 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 um, yep. I want to. I, I this is a crazy question. You think Elliot and Paula would have stayed together? Yeah, and made a run it and oh, made yeah. a run to the end. Yeah, I'd like to think so. Yeah, and I think mostly because of Richard's character. He was just too much fun to be around that you would want to lose that. We're watching the other night, and we've seen it a bunch of times, and my wife turns to me and she says, he's just charming. Yeah. He was great. He was just and that great. And that was a good marriage of, of actor and writer. Yeah. Don't you think? Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And when we did Prisoner of Second Avenue in London, we had a, we had a huge success there. Again, because I think of that chemistry. You just picked up where you left off yeah. in a way? That's so great. Totally. Wonderful. And also, I knew how to rein him in, you know, because if you let Richard go, you know <laughs> what I mean? There's no stopping him. And there was this one, I remember there was this one performance where he has to go kind of semi-nuts, but he went full out nuts, and he's practically climbing some uh, bookshelves and I, I have the next line, and he's going on. So I just folded my hands, and I waited. And the audience is laughing at him, <laughs> and he's it's feeding him more and more. So by this time, he looks like an orangutan, you know, climbing the bookshelves. <laughs> and finally, he sort of like comes to, and he looks at me, and I just said, are you finished and I that's went fantastic. On play. But that's the kind of special chemistry we had. Yeah. And Neil was thrilled with it. Just luck in a way. Yeah. You couldn't make nah. you couldn't you, build you it. You can't no, you can't make that up. No. Yeah. We're gonna tell people to read your book, which you published in two thousand, Journey, a personal Odyssey. Oh, thank you. And read all the different titles that you almost went through. <laughs> And I find it, as I said, I find it fascinating that you're bringing up names like Edward Arnold and Lionel Barrymore. Yeah. We, like t- we love character actors here. We love the James uh, Locos of the oh, world. Oh, yes, and the, absolutely. And the, and the Bruno Kirby's and the John exactly. Mahoney's and, and these you people. Know, they don't get I enough I mean, due. movies lost those characters for a long time. I mean, Joe Pesci's bringing them back. You know, oh, you Marty mean like Scor- you mean like the, to this day yeah, we still don't like the Edward Everett Horton kind yes, of type of actors. We don't or? have well any kind of really character interesting actors. character actor. Right. If you think about it, 
what film can we name other than, I mean, I think about, because only because Joe Pesci is getting so much press now. And I think Marty Scorsese dealt in character actors, you know. But for the broad swath of I know. Well, you tell them the Totoros are out there. Yes. Well, absolutely. You have to look for them. But they're not revered like they were in the 40s and the 30s. No. Yeah. No, they You're were a TCM great. person like us? Do you sit oh, yeah. there and watch sure. and, and watch these oldies and I that's how I grew up. And get into was this stuff. Watching I mean, I remember David Suskind's play of the week oh. in black and white. Million on dollar the movie. One, yeah. one yeah. time Bob Osborne, I we had went him on, on we, yes. had him, we had him yes. here on the yes. programmer with him. Oh, he was that wonderful. Was great, great to do that. Yeah. And part of the problem is, too, is that the studio wannabes, the executives, for a long time, I don't know if this is true today, but for quite a while there, they didn't even know who anybody was from the 70s. It's crazy. It's yeah. one of the reasons we do this show. Yeah, we keep we're, we're trying to keep these names alive. We're trying Aren't to keep this. Sweet? We're trying to keep it's this nice. history alive. Well, you know, Jessica Walters said to us as we were walking her out to the elevator, "Don't ever stop doing this." I directed it's a, her. You did know? you? Yes. Yeah. She's great. In Steel Magnolias, she's and she great. was fabulous. She's a gem. She said, she's... "Keep doing this because she sees it as a public service." <laughs> she's right. <laughs> as as we do, you know, and watching something like The Cheap Detective or, or Murder by Death, you see, these are movies made by movie lovers. That Neil had just such a love for Alicia Cook Jr. Yeah. and Paul Hanreed. Yeah. And 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 these people that and Sidney Greenstreet. Well, and yeah. the people that are he being did. parodied. He loved them. He we had Danny them. Houston in here, John Houston's son. Oh a couple, wow. A couple of weeks ago. We were talking about about this. There's a character actor. Totally. And, you know? and he does a great John Houston imitation. <laughs> <laughs> Marsha, what's next? What's chapter three? Well, um, I've been directing more and more now, so that's really good. And I just finished a play at the Irish Rep, actually. Played a North Dublin um, grandmother. That's in your neighborhood, the Irish Rep. Yes. You better go see it. Little Jim. No, we just finished. We finished about three weeks ago. One of our other guests. Matthew Broderick was doing something. Yeah, Matthew's worked there. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So you're directing. And I've you're been enjoying it. No more acting. racing. No more racing. So Matthew is an Irish Jew, I think. <laughs> well, he's definitely Irish. Yeah. Yeah. If if he is, that puts him in I I, I have this whole category of Irish <laughs> Jews. Uh Jack Warden. Uh Leo Gorsi from oh, the Bowery Boys. Yeah. Uh well, of course, Ben Stiller. Right. Um, ben Stiller. Oh well, uh, uh Harrison Ford. Right. <laughs> the things he thinks These about. These are the things I, <laughs> that you preoccupy yourself yes, with. Yes, <laughs> It's very interesting. See, we got through a whole interview. We never brought up Hot Rod Hullabaloo. <laughs> people, will have to, people will have to do their own research. Yeah, they should. We yeah. want to thank you. Oh, for, thank you for very doing much. I've had a great time. And schlepping thank out you. for us. And we want to thank Please. Mark Malkoff, who will... Who, uh, from you did the Carson podcast, yes, with Mark. I did. So this is your second podcast. Oh, actually, that's yes. right. I forgot yes, that he, he put us in touch with you. So oh, we wanna, thank we you. Thank Mark. I and, did. I love. I loved Johnny. He was really nice. And people should read your book. People who want to be an actor or want <laughs> to be a creative really person. It's fascinating. Thank you. Your childhood is fascinating. Oh, in St. Thank Louis you. too. Thank you. And the whole the whole journey. Oh well, they if they want the book or something and have difficulty finding it, they can go on Facebook and I'll get it to them. You're on Facebook. Yeah. Oh, so you're out there. I'm out there. Okay. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. 
We will share with you the social media responses to this episode. Okay. And you will be, uh, oh, cool. will be pleasantly flattered. Okay, good. <laughs> so this has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And we have been speaking to the hooker werewolf herself. <laughs> Marsha Mason. That's a great Marsha Mason. Marsha, you've probably done, you've done 5,000 interviews. I'll bet no one has ever serenaded you as no Paul Williams. No one has ever, and I feel thrilled. This was a joy for us. A thank, joy for me, thank, too. Thank you so thank much. You. I have a whole new career. I'm a werewolf. A oh hooker werewolf. A hooker yes. werewolf. A doxy. <laughs> All your life you've waited For love to come and stay And now that I have found you You must now slip away I know it's hard believing The words you've heard before But darling you must trust them Just once more Godfrey's Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Godfrey and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn. 